terms of the powers and the gifts, girls. Learning lessons, hosting parties in this modern world. Stick around, a brighter day is guaranteed. Enjoy your time and some etiquette with Emily. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Etiquette with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Pertzborn. In my last episode, I shared some unique party ideas from a few of my favorite books on entertaining. I also shared 10 Lessons in Charm from John Robert Power's 1954 book, Secrets of Charm, and a tip of the week from Tiffany's Table Manners for Teenagers. Today, we will have a brief chat about courtship and ancient cultures, discuss some Valentine's Day celebration ideas from the 1959 Foodorama Party Book, and I will also share a part two to my 10 Lessons in Charm from The Secrets of Charm. To close, I will give a tip of the week from Marjorie Hillis's 1936 book, Live Alone and Like It. I've been making this podcast live every Monday, but unfortunately this week it is a bit delayed due to some work and social commitments I had last week. But remember what I said in my first episode, progress is better than perfection, so we're going to truck right along. With this being said, this episode was supposed to air before Valentine's Day, but I feel like all of February is a fun and festive month for love. Before I dive into the content of this episode, I'd like to share some things I've recently been loving. I usually feel a great sense of serendipity when I start to learn about a particular topic or moment in history, but these last few weeks have been extremely particular in timing. When the first episode of the HBO show The Gilded Age aired in 2022, I was very excited because that had been an etiquette time period I had wanted to dive into. For whatever reason, I did not fall in love with the first episode and I didn't continue watching. The show is historical fiction, but many of the characters are real-life people or based on real-life people. While some things about the show are a bit cheesy, there's also a lot of historic truth. At the urge of a friend telling me to give it another shot, I did, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. However, right before I began to start watching it again, I listened to Anderson Cooper's Vanderbilt biography on Audible. It was absolutely splendid and such a joy to listen to. The Russell family in the Gilded Age is based on the Vanderbilts, specifically William Kissam Vanderbilt and his wife, Alva Vanderbilt. Anderson Cooper's book also discusses the Astor family and a lot of other well-known families and people of the time, including Ward McAllister. Ward McAllister is a figure that keeps coming up in my studies due to his immense influence during the Gilded Age. A couple months ago, I listened to Emily Post's biography on Audible, and there was much mention of Emily's disdain for McAllister and his snobbery. Before I even began to really learn about Ward McAllister, I just so happened to pick up his 1890 memoir, Society as I Have Found It, from my favorite bookstore in New York City, Bonnie Slotnick's Cookbooks. This was back in early December. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, but it is definitely next on my list. Ward McAllister was a small, flamboyant Southern man who was an arbiter of social tastes in the Gilded Age of America. He was best friends with Caroline Astor and came up with the 400. He declared there were only 400 people in fashionable New York society. After I read McAllister's book, I will do some dedicated episode segments on him. I finished listening to the Vanderbilt's book just a couple days before the new FX show Feud, Capote vs. the Swans aired. I was very excited to watch the show to begin with, but Anderson Cooper covered the entire storyline in his biography because his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, was at the center of the real-life story. She has yet to be depicted in the TV show, which I find a bit strange. Capote vs. the Swans is the true-life account of author Truman Capote's friendship and influence over the most exclusive of New York's mid-century socialites and the tragic story of his falling out with them. Just like Capote, McAllister also had a falling out with his socialite friends and was an outcast at the time of his death. That's not where the parallels end. They are both small, flamboyant Southern men who wrote a book of gossip about their socialite female friends. 
I know that was a lot of names to follow, but if any of this sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend watching The Gilded Age on HBO as well as Feud, Capote vs. the Swans on Hulu. And you could read Anderson Cooper's The Vanderbilts, but I must say I really enjoyed listening to it. But seriously, how weird is it that all these things I'm learning about are so strangely connected? In my last episode, I mentioned the exciting mail delivery of Lillian Eichler's 1924 book, The Customs of Mankind. I haven't began reading it because I'm still working through my current reads, but while skimming through it, I came across a chapter titled A Short History of Courtship. In honor of Valentine's Day, I will share an excerpt titled The Exchange of Gifts from that chapter. We are told that in Homer's time, the bridegroom wooed the bride with rich gifts. If Adamus, for instance, offered a hundred heifers and a thousand goats as a nuptial present, the exchange of gifts would naturally have come into courtship at a very early time. The presenting of gifts is one of the simplest and surest methods of winning favor. In primitive culture, the gift meant a great deal more than it does to us today. The primitive man or woman felt that a part of himself or herself was being presented. Among the Kakians, even now there seems to be little more of a marriage ceremony than the interchange of presents. And in Japan, the sending of presents to the bride by the groom is one of the most important parts of the marriage ceremony. When the gifts have been received and accepted, the contract is considered complete and neither party can draw back. As we follow the development of gift making and courtship, we find that a certain romance centers around the flower. A Timorese woman, even today, bestows the highest mark of attachment upon her lover when she gives him the flower garland from her hair. Among the Polynesians, men and women alike wear flowers behind their ears when they are in love. The flower is, as a rule, the gift of the lover. It was an ancient betrothal custom among various peoples, conspicuously among them the Greeks, to wear a flower as an external and conspicuous mark of the engagement. The full-blown flower suggested love awakened, and it was with the flower that lovers in early days exchanged their engagement vows. A short-lived emblem indeed, with which to plight a lifelong love. But there have been many other favorite courtship gifts besides flowers. The custom of giving a bit of jewelry or something decorative to wear probably originated in the myth that whoever wore the magic girdle of Aphrodite became the object of great love. And the custom of the young woman making something for her betrothed to wear probably had its origins in the old Scandinavian tradition that for a wedding to be happy, the bride must make with her own hands the groom's bridal shirt. Everyone knows that the teacup is quite the thing to give to an engaged girl. But why? Tradition tells us that a lover who was on one occasion obliged to go away on an extended sea journey gave to his betrothed a delicate china cup, asking her to drink tea from it every afternoon at a certain hour. He said, if I am unfaithful, the cup will fill to overbrimming, and the tea pouring over the sides will crack the thin china. Then you will know I have broken faith. I hope you enjoyed that excerpt from The Customs of Mankind. This book is filled with so much amazing history, and I will definitely be sharing it in tons of episodes to come. And now, let's move on to some advice on how to throw a Valentine's Day party. The 1959 Futurama Party Book is another great source of vintage party ideas and recipes. The illustrations and photography are to die for. I highly recommend purchasing this book if you are a fan of vintage food photography. I'm now going to share the written portion of the Valentine's Day chapter. Valentine Party. Hearts and Cupids run rampant on February 14th. For a mood-setting Valentine Party invitation, make a construction paper heart of red, pink, or white. The cover sparkles with matching sequins. Perhaps a paper doily ruffle frames the cover, and inside is all of the party data. Decoration colors are red and white or pretty pastels. Tiny red and white paper hearts flutter overhead, each one suspended by a thread which is scotch taped to the ceiling. Doorways become lovely archways of fluttering red cellophane hearts. 
Fresh flowers, leaves, and tall red or white candles enhance the scene. As guests arrive, set them to making the most original Valentine cards ever seen from materials which are laid out on a table. Paper hearts, lace paper doilies, cubic cutouts, etc. Valentine makers then exchange valentines and escort partners to the party table. The party table centerpiece may be either a pretty tray or a flower heart. Shape the outline of a heart with a coat hanger wire and then cover the outline with fresh flowers using picture wire to secure them to the frame. Fill the heart with silver foil-wrapped chocolate hearts, each one scotch-taped onto a stem of coat hanger wire, which is secured to the base in a lump of clay or florist-based material. Lemon or lime leaves hide the wires. Sprinkle tiny red paper hearts over the table surface, paste a border of the same hearts to the tablecloth edge, and paste a single tiny heart to the corner of each guest's napkin. For a place card favor, wrap a little nut cup in red crepe paper, paste a white paper heart to the front, and fill the cup with Valentine's candies or red lollipops. Play at least two games well suited to your romantic theme. Give each couple the names of a pair of famous lovers, Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, Jack and Jill, Samson and Delilah, to act out its charade for the others to guess. Follow this with a more active game called elopement. The menu for this Valentine party includes a mile-high raspberry pie, a claret punch, which includes lemon juice, pineapple juice, sugar, claret wine, and chilled ginger ale. And the rest of the menu continues with a roast loin of pork, sherry-glazed yams, banana sea foam, and a vegetable medley salad. I hope you guys all had a wonderful Valentine's Day, and if you did something fun and festive like throw a party or a Galentine's dinner, I would love to see some photos, so please tag me in those. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I highly recommend doing so for more history about the Powers Girls and John Robert Powers' book, Secrets of Charm. I mentioned that Grace Kelly was a Powers Girl while she lived at the Barbizon in New York City, but a fact I forgot to mention is that she joined the Powers Agency because Ford models turned her down. Can you imagine how regretful turning down Grace Kelly would be in hindsight? Let's continue on with 10 more lessons in charm from Secrets of Charm. Number one. Simply cut and simply adorned clothes are smart and appropriate the world over. Although strict conservatism is not a consummate goal, it is a better one than an appearance that is either fatty or extreme. The best in fashion takes a middle course, and it is the line which a suitably dressed woman follows. Number two. This one is a quote from John Robert Powers. My idea of beauty is, and always has been, the natural girl and woman. The naturalness that charms is an art, the art of making the most of your beauty potentials. Number three, beauty is a habit. With methodical attention, a duckling turns into a swan and a merely pretty woman becomes a great beauty. Number four, the starting place on the climb to natural beauty is skincare. The most significant milestone along the route to acquiring or keeping a flower-fresh young complexion is to understand that the skin is an organ, the largest of the body. Number five, never go to bed without removing your makeup. However exhausted you may feel, give your skin the break of breathing through cleansed pores. Number six, never forget that your neck is part of your face. It needs the same considerate care. Number seven, apply foundation sparingly, so sparingly that it forms an invisible film on your skin. Number eight, cracked lips and cracked lipstick are about as attractive as chipped china, but smooth lips impart appeal to the face. Be conscious tomorrow and ever after that lipstick is the only obvious cosmetic that a discriminating face allows to show. Number nine, Well-shaped brows frame the eye with beauty and cap the modulation of the face. Neglect them and you detract immeasurably from your beauty quotient. Number 10. An 8-hour sleep is nature's best eye sparkle treatment. Because this book has so many great vintage beauty, fashion, and etiquette tips, I will be doing a part 3 in next week's episode. It's now time for my tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Marjorie Hillis's 1936 book, Live Alone and Like It. This is one of my favorite books and you will definitely be hearing more from it in the future. Do go in for cosmetics in a serious way. Not any old cream, but the right creams. The right coiffure, too. And the right nail polish. And all the other beauty tricks that make you feel elegant. 
This is the kind of pampering that pays. There are other good kinds, a glass of sherry and an extra special dinner charmingly served on a night when you're tired and all alone, bath salts in your tub and refreshing scent afterwards, a new and spicy book when you're spending an evening in bed, a trim little cotton frock that flatters you on an odd morning when you decide to be violently domestic. The notion that it doesn't matter because nobody sees you with the dull meals and dispirited clothes that follows in its wake has done more damage than the flood. I love Marjorie Hillis's writing style so much. She is just so witty and funny, and there's just so much charm in her writing. And that concludes this week's episode of Etiquette with Emily. I would love your feedback on whether or not you guys like the style of this week's episode. I did a lot more reading from my books, and I thought this might be interesting because I do have a really great vintage etiquette book collection, and I know a lot of people listening might not have a lot of these books, and so I thought it might be cool to share full excerpts from some of them, and I'm not going to do it this way every episode, but I do think I'm going to integrate more of this style in future episodes. Next week, we will discuss Emily Post's opinions on napkin folding, as well as a brief history of tablecloths. I will also share my third and final segment on lessons in charm from Secrets of Charm and a tip of the week from Amy Vanderbilt's 1956 edition of Everyday Etiquette. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as follow Etiquette with Emily on Instagram. Don't forget to send me your questions about anything ranging from entertaining to fashion. You can email them to hello at emilypertsmorn.com or message them on Instagram. A huge thanks to my friend Trace for writing and performing my theme song, as well as the insanely talented Holly Holland for illustrating my logo. Once again, my name is Emily Pertzborn, and I believe it's time to put out the fire and call on the cats. Good day to you. Get with Emily